What are you and your friends looking for from your role-playing game? What's the purpose of your play? Why do you play the games that you play? If you say the real life is up your days And you don't have time to play Well, midlife is the best time to start a new role-playing thing My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, Rescuers. Over the past several months, ever since I first began podcasting, and possibly from before, I've been on a journey of discovery in which I've been trying to figure out how best to play these role-playing games that have so enriched my life. Of course, along the way, I've been reminded that this journey, although filled with good people and friendly faces, it remains a deeply personal one. There is no one true way for all, no one-size-fits-all approach, and certainly no single pathway to success. Before you start thinking that I sound all wishy-washy and vague, like some kind of ultra-relativist who has nothing to say except to himself, well, let me say clearly that I do believe there is a right way to play for myself. If I was playing solo, alone, with no one else to consider, this would be an easy journey to complete. I could be selfish and simply play my way, no questions. I know what I enjoy, but I do not play alone. This is a social hobby. We play within the context of others at the table. Thus, on my journey, it's become vital that I listen to others and consider what they're seeking from these games that we share together. And that's why I'm eternally grateful to everyone who has ever graced my gaming table and also to everyone who has ever called in to talk to me throughout the past 18 months of my being a podcaster. Thank you. You've helped me figure out, step by step, the direction I am taking in my quest for the best approach to role-playing for my table. When you are there... I am learning and becoming better, and I hope that you are learning and becoming better too. Today's episode is about what I've been learning in the last four months or so. I've been on a deeply difficult quest to understand what others have said and thought, and what others have believed throughout this hobby's nearly 50 years or so of evolution first began. I'm only just beginning to understand, but today's episode is a great illustration of how the questions listeners ask help to shape my understanding. This is Season 6, Episode 2. Why do you play what you play? Back in January 2020, I had a call-in from the legendary podcaster and game designer Ray Otis of Plundergrounds fame. It was in response to an episode I had made about the eight engagements of games. He made a mention of wondering how the eight engagements connected to the idea of simulationism, and I asked him what he meant. Dutifully, Ray replied, At the time, regarding the subtopic of simulationism, I promised to follow up in a later episode. The reason was that at the time, I didn't really know what I thought 
I mean, in truth, I was deeply uncomfortable with words like simulationism and narrativism and also gamism. And this was because of the negative associations these words held in my mind. I had heard those terms, but I'd always interpreted them as labels applied to people as a kind of a way to divide them and put them down. I was, of course, simply out of my depth, and I probably still am. Just a couple of weeks ago, Spencer from Keep Off the Borderlands podcast, he called in with a response to some comments I made about abstraction in gaming, and also asked for a response. I played the message in Season 6, Episode 1, and I promised a longer answer at a later date. While I felt better armed to handle this one, I have to admit that I wanted to get the first episode of the season out there without an early dive into theory. I was also not entirely sure how to respond. I needed time to think. So sorry about that, Spencer. And sorry about that, Ray. The questions, these are good ones. And I wasn't prepared to try and answer them glibly. Before I replay those calls and respond, I feel I need to share what's happened since those messages first arrived. In short, I've done some further reading and thinking, and further along in my journey. And it has been those calls, plus some other help from fellow listeners, that has allowed me to travel further than I realised I needed to go. I guess I am recording this episode as much to help me work out what I think as I am to answer those questions. I was aware that the source of the term simulationism, in my understanding of role-playing game theory, came from Ron Edwards' writing around the turn of the century on what is often called the GNS theory, and, more recently, on the big model. Honestly, I had rather uncritically absorbed a lot of the negative reaction to his stuff back in the early days of the Forge and not paid his ideas much attention. I think, back then, I was in a pretty bad place with my hobby, and the idea that my gaming was, to use the clumsy phrase, bad wrong fun, well, this was threatening to me. Had I actually read the theory? Not really. The big change for me came when listening to an interview with Ron Edwards hosted by the excellent Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks podcast by Andy Goodman. In this, Ron explained how GNS theory wasn't about methodology in play as much as it was about intent. He was asking what the purpose of the game was. What is your intention? What are you trying to get from the game? It's much better explained than I could ever do justice to here in his wiki post for the big model that you can access through his website at Adept Press. Although, going to access it while researching this episode, I discovered the site is down, and I hope this is temporary. Anyway, the simple idea that whether your purpose for play is gamist, narrativist, or simulationist, because that is what the G, N, and S of the theory stand for, this was the key that unlocked Ron's work for me. Suddenly, I was able to break through the barrier and approach him with fresh eyes. So massive thanks to Andy Goodman for making that possible. I would dearly love to interview Ron myself and deepen my understand further, but, well, in the meantime, if you've not heard the episode, please hit up Expedition to the Grizzly Peaks, episode 129, interview with Ron Edwards. I'll stick a link in the show notes. What's my point? Well... I guess I am better armed to answer Ray's and Spencer's call-ins. So, let's see what they had to say. 
Hi, Jay. This is Ray. I recently brought up the idea of simulationism on your podcast through a call-in, and you were curious as to what I meant by that. And then, as a result, I was curious as to what I meant by that. (laughs) I'm one of those people that often doesn't know what he thinks until he hears himself say it out loud. Uh, So I thought maybe we could talk through this together a little bit. And I'm going to start from a really weird place. Uh, there's a phrase that, that pops into my head, and I'm, I want to define it for myself, but I'm going to say that I want to start with the definition of simulationism as answering a what-if question with as little bias as possible. When I think of simulation, I first think of war games and the idea of playing out a historical battle with uh, to see how different results or different factors would change the results. First of all, I think you sort of want to play to see how, uh, how likely the actual historic outcome was. And once you feel like you have the, the I don't know, uh, potential factors in hand uh, and that it plays to your satisfaction, then you try out different strategies. What if uh, they had better equipment or what if it was rainy that day, right? And that kind of simulation in a war game is, is endlessly fascinating, I think, to people who play war games. Now, for role-playing games, it's a little different, isn't it? It's not just a matter of how many Shermans does it take to beat a Panzer. Uh, I think in role-playing simulation, especially in fantasy role-playing, it's a really problematic and, and funny phrase to try to make a fantasy world as realistic as possible. But I do feel like it comes from this concept that the fantasy world will feel more real if the underpinning rules and equipment lists and uh, uh, prescribed behaviors of various pieces of equipment and weather and all that kind of stuff uh, feel as real as possible because they will help all the unreality, all the fantastical ideas be underpinned by realistic, relatable things that we experience every day. So is this one of the types of fun? I don't know. Um, I think I'm just talking about simulationism at this point. It's a whole different thing. But I do think that some people really engage with and enjoy fiddling around with these sorts of things, like how um, how great was the Mongol uh, recurved horn short, short bow, right? The horse horseback bow. Um, I had a, a friend at, at my old gaming shop who... Every time he put his miniatures on the table, he wanted extra range for his bows because they were Mongols. And I'm thinking, <laughs> okay, fine, but that's not really fun within the game, right? Uh, because those bows should cost more points or whatever. It gets into kind of endless debates when you get into that um, when you get into that space. I'll add one other thought, which is I don't think simulation is the same as optimization. So, you know, optimizing character builds is kind of a similar sort of fun, but that's not simulation. I think a a true simulationist doesn't really care whether a character lives or dies or whether you quote unquote win the scenario or not. It uh, they just put things together to see what will happen. Right. Um, It's kind of an arena of ideas, if you will. So that's uh, some rambling for me, unprogrammed, unscripted and and perhaps uh, idiotic. (laughs) I'd love to hear your thoughts on simulationism, though, and what you love about it and whether it applies to role playing games at all. First of all, thanks, Ray. It's not at all idiotic. Sorry, it took me four months or so to reply. Initially, I didn't know that I understood your definition, but now that I hear it again, I I think I tend to agree that yes, that's not a bad starting point. Simulation is, for me, my main reason for turning up. It's the game of what-if played with others, 
What if I'm a wizard and you're a warrior and we have to go and clear out an orc lair to stop them raiding our village? Because of my background as a wargamer, I'm thinking about things in concrete terms. What can my spells actually do? And what kind of bow are you using? When I worked for GW back in the late 90s, and also the early noughties, people used to smirk at my interest in role-playing games. I remember very vividly being told by a senior manager in the UK sales office that the Inquisitor Skirmish game, and also the Warhammer Fantasy RPG, were very much about, quote, weapon porn, and the nitty-gritty details of gear. It mattered, they alleged, what type of sword you were using in a way that standard Warhammer Fantasy Battle, the tabletop war game, didn't care about. Despite the smirking condescension, they were right, at least they were for me. Yes, it matters to me if it's a longsword, a gladius, or a broadsword. Is the bow a recurve? Well, cool. Don't even get me started on guns in modern games. Just suffice it to say that these details matter to me. And that is my itch to simulate. I'm seeking verisimilitude in my fantasy worlds. It needs to feel believable. But it's not a description of how I play. As Ron Edwards points out, it speaks of why I play these games. He posits that all role-playing games are about exploration, but the difference is in why we are exploring. If it's about exploring whether I can beat that dragon with this character, we might be in a gamist mode. But if it's exploring a story with a specific theme, then it's probably narrativism. Simulationism, to quote Ron's 2004 GNS article, quote, heightens and focuses exploration as the priority of play. The players may be greatly concerned with the internal logic and experiential consistency of that exploration, end quote. It's put much more succinctly in three short phrases within Ron's later big model. Step on up, story now, or the right to dream. All are valid. They're just different reasons to sit down and play, different outcomes sought. None is superior nor inferior, as I understand it. They're just different, and to quote the Vulcans, I want us to embrace infinite diversity in infinite combinations. As I've said before, my personal bias is towards the right to dream, simulation, but I also enjoy the gamest mode of play. Will you step on up? Shall we challenge each other? Great. I am simply not very experienced with the story now focused, the desire to explore a tale with a specific theme, and so I tend to shy away from that narrativist mode. But all are valid, and I want to learn. I just don't find it easy because the reason I play isn't to explore the same things as the story now narrativist. Thus, I'm not engaging with the game in the same way. It'll be harder for me to bridge that gap, especially with 40 years of personal gaming baggage in the U-Haul. I'll be needing your help. One of the most useful things I got from Ron Edwards' work was the idea that these purposes of play, these reasons why we sit at the table together, applies to each specific, and I quote, instance of play, end quote. An instance of play is not a specific period of time. It might apply to one session of play, but it isn't defined in that kind of a way. Maybe an example would help. When I was playing Dungeons of Thal a couple of weeks back, 
I realised that the encounter with the stone golem was very much played with that group of players in that specific instance of play in a gamist mode. Step on up and defeat the golem. It used tokens on a battle map. We were using all the tactical combat options of the game system in play and it was a very, very cool battle. But the following session was different. That instance of play was exploring the experience of delving 80 metres or more underground. We were expressing our right to dream. It was simulationist. And both were valid. What are you seeking in this specific instance of play? Step on up. Story now. Or, well, the right to dream. Hey Chase, Spencer here. Um, I just wanted to say I really enjoyed the latest episode, but um, in your assessment of abstract rules, um, it, there seemed to be a suggestion that these these exist somehow to negate role playing, as if there's some kind of shortcut to the action. Um, I would argue that. Abstract rules were more about rule retention, the ability for everyone around the table to understand the rules, and you didn't have to halt proceedings to refer to a book to do specific things, and that perhaps that would allow for even more immersive role play. What do you think? Great episode, by the way. Take care. It was at this point that I think I messaged Spencer and said, thanks, but I don't entirely understand, and asked him if he had an example, and, well, here's what he said. Take it away, Spencer. An obvious example would be combat. You look at a game like RuneQuest, and by extension uh, Mithras, um, and I believe they have hit location in the combat. Now... Looking at a game like, say, Dungeon World, perhaps, with a much more abstract combat rules, but much simpler, doesn't mean you can't narrate the combat with the same degree of detail and depth. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is uh, abstract rules don't, don't go hand in hand with hand waviness. <laughs> that was unfortunate. Um, but um, they do lead to simpler rules that everyone at the table can understand and remember. So if the rules are simpler, it's easier for everyone to remember them and gameplay can flow unimpeded. People can roleplay without worrying about rules for specific circumstances that may have to be, you know, checked in some rules tome. Um, I hope that clarifies things a little. If not, just let me know. So thanks, Spencer. Thanks for the call in. Um, and yeah, it did clarify things for me. So thank you. It's always interesting to me that what I try to communicate and what others hear is often quite different. For me... There was never a suggestion that abstract rules exist to negate role-playing or that these abstractions are sort of shortcutting the action. Going back to listen to Series 5, Episode 21, what I said was, quote, 
Too much abstraction undermines my sense of immersion into the fantasy of the world, end quote. I later said, quote, I prefer the games that have a higher sense of fantasy realism and verisimilitude. I also recognise that not all players are seeking what I am seeking in a game, end quote. And of course, the context was in relation to abstract encumbrance rules like the usage die. In short, I want to count my arrows and my food rations. I prefer to add spoilage events to my random events table. Anyway, misunderstanding aside, let me try to respond. What do I think about the idea that abstract rules leave more space for descriptive embellishments? At least, I assume that's what you meant by role-playing. I don't use the word role-playing to mean add descriptive details or to mean play-acting my character, but that's another discussion. In short, my answer is... Maybe. In my experience, players are not very good at adding descriptive details to their combat scenes. In D&D, the game plays more like, I hit the orc with my sword, then I ask for an attack roll, and the player says, I hit armor class 4, and then rolls damage and says, for example, that's 4 points of damage. They expect me, as referee, to add the descriptive details. And I usually forget because I am stressed, managing in my head what the heck is going on because it's theatre of the mind and I'm using a huge cognitive load to imagine the scene and pin down all the details of who is where in the collective imagination. This is stressful to me. If only players would do the descriptive stuff more and also do it without taking liberties with what is possible. I have experienced players who say... I hit the orc and cleave off its head before they consider whether four hit points of damage is enough to even kill it. But that's my admittedly limited experience. So maybe abstract rules can be used in a more descriptive, freeform and rich way. Yes. But I have not experienced that in any significant way in 40 years of play. Maybe it's just the people who like the games I run. Those are, admittedly, usually games where I don't often use abstract combat in the theatre of the mind. I'm much more likely to be using pretty much concrete combat with a battle mat. This has been changing in my recent experiments with Old School Essentials, playtesting Gavin Norman's excellent Dolmenwood. I had a game only the other day in which both players did, in one instance of play, in just one battle roll the dice off screen and then narrated the outcome without reference to the numbers rolled and we were trusting each other to do that and it was curiously wonderful. This is what I mean about being on a journey. I can see the potential in that. I think it was in my recent conversation with Steve Jackson that I heard an echo of what I feel about abstract combat when he talked about designing Malay, the first building block of the fantasy trip, because he found D&D combat unsatisfactory. Why don't the orcs get behind the fighters? Why does it feel like it devolves into a slugfest with two lines of warriors duking it out? Like Steve, I find that moving to a tactical battle map with hexes or grids opens up vistas of tactical options that usually get forgotten about when playing a more abstracted combat system. There is nothing wrong with the theatre of the mind, abstract approach, if that's your jam. As Ray alluded to earlier, it's my background in both tabletop and hex and chip wargaming, and it was Steve's background with similar wargames, that means we prefer to use miniatures or tokens and a map. Suddenly, 
When I use a more concrete combat system, I feel that my cognitive load is decreased hugely because everyone can see where the orcs are and who is in combat with whom. At this point, I go much further in enjoying a lot of descriptive details being added, not by the players, but through the mechanisms of the game, just like Spencer alluded to in his example of Mithras and hit locations. Spencer suggests that abstract rules leave more space for description of the action, not less. Well, maybe. What I know is that a more concrete simulation of the scene is more natural for me to handle at a table. It feels more believable. It offers me the tactical challenge that I enjoy engaging with in my games and it means that everyone knows what's going on. But your mileage may vary. The trade-off is tracking more details and counting hexes or squares. It can feel more like a war game or a board game because it is more like a war game or a board game. If you like those things, it's a feature. And if you don't like war games and board games, or if you can't be fiddling with details, then abstraction is your friend. But underneath all of this lies Ron Edwards' question, why do you play? I play because I enjoy two of the three purposes of play. In each instance of combat, I enjoy shifting to a gamist, step-on-up exploration of whether your characters can defeat these monsters in this situation. Tactical combat lets us explore that in a very direct manner, using the rules of the game to discover the outcome. That said, I'm also very happy to explore the combat through the lens of the simulation. Let's dream the world together and explore what it feels like to fight in a fantastic situation played out in the imagination. In all the instances of play, either side of my tactical combat, I'll prefer to imagine it all and find out all the rich details of the setting we're experiencing together. Are you playing for similar reasons? Or do you want to discover the story that is unfolding through a specific theme? If that combat is about the triumph of good over evil, perhaps, then you are playing for different reasons to me. You want story now, and that is perfectly acceptable. Remember, I want us to have a community of discovery in which you can feel accepted. We're discovering how to play in a way that suits you better. There is no one true way. But, that said, my tactical combat is going to drive you crazy because at my table I am not usually playing to find out if good will triumph over evil or to explore any particular story now theme. We are playing for different reasons. Nothing wrong with that. Does that help? I don't know. I suspect that it might sound a bit weird to many listeners, but perhaps that's because you want something different from your game, and that's fine by me. I like to simulate the world I'm gaming in. I enjoy verisimilitude and detail. I also am not at all averse to game-like mechanisms that challenge me. Well, because I'm a gamer who likes learning to master game mechanisms. For me, it's not a novel, not a film or a TV series. It's a fantasy adventure game. I'll be needing you to help me transition into playing to explore the story with a specific narrative theme. That stuff is, frankly, pretty new to me. Game on. And that's about all we've got time for this week on Roleplay Rescue. Thanks for listening. And I hope that my replies to Ray and Spencer were of some use to somebody out there, not least to those guys themselves. 
Massive thank you to Ray Otis of Plundergrounds and Spencer, also known as Three Thrall, from Keep Off the Borderlands. I hope that you're enjoying Roleplay Rescue Season 6. Don't forget, because we're an Anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or further questions, and your contributions really do make this a very much better podcast, as you've probably experienced today. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider sharing the episode across social media. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again on the flip side. Game on.